0: And now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 20 as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. Hear God's holy word. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify And the third day he will rise again. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that your spirit would fill us now, that we would receive your word, that we would respond correctly, that we would obey it and apply it in all the right ways, deliver us from error, deliver us from distraction, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. People of God, you've probably all heard the term helicopter parent, whether you like it or not. That's a popular term used to describe a mom or a dad who persistently hover over their child ready to instantly deliver them from any kind of small danger, intervene in any conflict, direct every one of their steps as they play. These helicopter parents exhibit a kind of excessive or obsessive attention to the smallest detail of their child's life. They do things for their child that their child ought to be able to do for themselves. Now, of course, toddlers require a certain degree of hovering, but as children grow, there's a great deal of wisdom in allowing them to exercise a little independence. They must learn how to play on their own, how to solve problems, how to figure things out, how to deal with conflicts, and as they grow into teenagers and a young adulthood, there are other things they need to learn like how to do a job interview without mom in the room sitting right next to them, how to interact with professors uh, in, in college without dad intervening. There's a new term I just came across That is, bulldozer parents. Have have you heard of these? These are parents who aggressively clear a path for their child, removing all the obstacles in their way to ensure that their child meets no resistance in life. Their child meets nothing but success at every step. And while this also is well-intentioned, the desire to protect your older children from anything scary, from anything unsafe, from anything risky, results in a fragile child, a child who's fearful and avoids anything that might end in failure. If it even smells like I might not be good at that, then I'm not even going to try it. They lose the immense blessing of learning from mistakes, and in the process, they don't learn resilience, they never learn how to pick themselves up when they fall, and predictably, there comes a day when the parent is not there to remove every obstacle from them uh, from their path and they, and they collapse. Uh, a major challenge in being a good father and a good mother is learning how to protect and to provide for our children without creating helpless, spiritually fragile, socially immature adults. I often use the metaphor of teaching a child how to ride a bike. When the training wheels come off as they must come off, one day. Uh, how do you teach them to ride a bike? Well, you first run alongside of them. You've got one hand on the handlebars, and you've got another hand on the seat, and you're running alongside of them while they you know, try to do this thing where they're trying to get their balance and they're trying to ride upright. At some point, you have to let go of the bicycle. At some point, you have to turn them loose and let them tumble. It's good to let them go. And it's good for them to take a little tumble and get up and try again. You can't run alongside the bike for the rest of their lives. Imagine the Tour de France with parents running along the sides of their bike. That would look ridiculous. And that metaphor confers to so many other areas of training children, and not just bike riding, but so many different things. I've often said to my wife, and we've used this metaphor in sorting through a complicated question for our child, and sometimes it ends with, we've got to let go of the bicycle. It's time to let go of the bicycle and and let them ride and skin their knee if necessary. It's good for us and for our children to meet resistance and to struggle. We have a good heavenly father whose son Jesus learned obedience through suffering, Hebrews 5.8 says. Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Our good heavenly father also brings us through various testings and difficulties in order to mature us. There's no glory, there's no rest, there's no blessing but the kind that comes through work and sacrifice and suffering. But the temptation is to avoid all that. We want the crown without the cross. And if possible, if we can just deliver our children all the way to the crown apart from the cross, that would be great, we think. In our text today, we have a bulldozer mom and her sons who needed to hear this. In Matthew chapter 20, the mother of James and John petitions Jesus, hoping to clear a path for her boys so that they can become senior officials when Jesus becomes king. And this request of hers comes out of a deep misunderstanding of who Jesus is, what his mission is, and what his kingdom is like. Let's walk through the text and see how Jesus answers this. In verse 17 of Matthew 20. Now Jesus going up, to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples aside on the road. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about this. Jesus has turned from Mount Hermon, from the Mount of Transfiguration, all the way up north, and now he's been heading south, south through Galilee. He's crossed the Jordan River, he's down into the territory of Judea, and he's angling toward Jerusalem. And, he's he's heading toward his final confrontation with Jewish authorities in Jerusalem so this section of Matthew 20 gives us the final events before his triumphal entry into the city. And as all this has been building up for the last few weeks, studying this week has been wonderful for me to see how, how this has been growing and the tension has been building and why you get this exuberant reception as he gets into Jerusalem in that triumphal entry on that Palm Sunday, we call it, as, as Jesus goes into the city. It's been this slow build and it's growing all this time. So he's going now up to Jerusalem. It doesn't matter which direction you're coming from, you're always going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is always up. Not only was Jerusalem in the mountains, geographically, but the holy hill of Zion is the place where Yahweh dwells with his people. So you ascend up into the sanctuary, you go up into worship, and so you always go up to Jerusalem. The Psalms of Ascent that little section of Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. Those are the Psalms that we sing when we go up to the city, when we ascend up to the city for the feast days. So now Jesus is on his way up into the city. And one last time before they get to the outer limits of the city, Jesus calls his 12 disciples aside. And he pulls them away from the crowds, and he said, one last time, I need to tell you what is going to happen to us when we get to the city of Jerusalem. I don't want any of this to surprise you. I don't want any of this to throw you off. Now, this is the third time since the transfiguration that he has told them this. He wants them to get it, and <laughs> we see. They ain't getting it, but he keeps saying it. He, he tells them, in verse he said to them, verse 18, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and they will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day, he will rise again. Now, I know you've experienced the weight and the dread of having something on your calendar that you're not looking forward to. There's been some confrontation, there's some conflict, there's something out there ahead of you. It's you, a conversation you are not looking forward to. You are dreading it and the closer you get to that, the more it crushes and the more it weighs on you. The pressure mounts up and it takes all of your mental and all of your physical resources to cope with that. The weight of confrontation has been building for Jesus. And it's been increasing now over the last several weeks and months as he gets closer to Jerusalem. And now as they get this close to the city of Jerusalem, it has to feel like he's carrying an elephant on his back. The, the weight that is pressing down on him, the weight on his mind and his body is enormous. And so he's sharing this with his closest companions. He's pulling them aside and saying, this is what we're headed for, friends. This is what we're going into. Anybody might ask, if if Jesus knows what's going to happen, why doesn't he go somewhere else? Save himself the trouble. Prolong his life. Go do some good somewhere else. Go back home. Well, he can't. Because going into the city now, this is how he obeys the Father. This is how he brings salvation to the world. This is how we have forgiveness of sins. This is how he defeats death and the grave and the devil. Knowing what is at stake, he consciously, he deliberately goes into the conflict. He is, Jesus is running into the burning building. He's running toward the shooting, not away from it. And despite the heaviness here, there is a real joy. There is a cheer. He's not, he's not anxious because at the end of this chain of events is glory. He says, every time he talks about this, he says, on the third day I'll rise again. The third day there's resurrection and there's ascension, and there's glory. So he can go into the city of conflict courageously, manfully, without fear or anxiety, without regret for anything that might be lost, and he's calling his men together so they can do the same. But Jesus said a lot of things to his 12 disciples that they didn't get. He said a lot of things that didn't bear fruit right away. And among the most glaringly apparent things that they missed were first, his clear description of his imminent suffering and his repeated promise that despite the mistreatment, despite the condemnation and death, he will rise again. That's the hope. The hope is that not all is going to be lost. We're going to go through some tough things. We're going to go through some really, really sad and tragic things, but the Son of Man will be vindicated. And by telling them this and sharing them uh, this with them, it's intended to fuel their joy. It's intended to fuel their confidence and their obedience, but they missed it. They missed it. What peace and comfort did they lose out on? What heartache could they have been spared if only they had been listening? We, we see then how critical, how really critical it is to hear and to listen to what God is speaking. From time to time, I, I get this sense, either articulated or implied, I get, I get this the sense that folks get frustrated sometimes over the emphasis that, that I personally put and that we put on verse-by-verse study of Bible text. We're just going through books verse-by-verse. Peter's going verse-by-verse through First Peter. I'm walking you through Matthew. Occasionally, we stop and do some topical stuff. For for the most part, we're just going through the text, and we sing all the way through Psalms, like we did this morning, sing Psalm 19, so we can get the text, we can hear what God is saying. We're singing it back and forth to each other, and we. Put this high priority on right worship before God. We're really seeking to please Him. It's not a small thing. Worship is not uh, uh, something you can take or leave. It's really important that we seek to please God in worship. And we have these emphases, and these emphases are often contrasted with the fact that we live in a country that's falling apart. And so you might say, well, well, all of that's nice and good, and maybe in a time of peace, when everything's going all right, maybe you've got the luxury to do all this, but don't you understand everything's falling apart? Don't you understand that our institutions are failing and our economy is working against us, it's especially working against young people? Every perversion under the sun is being promoted and reinforced and shoved in our faces all the time. Why don't we talk about that more? Why don't we talk about that all the time? Now, I I do address those things when the text directly addresses those things. The text talks about the problems we see in the world, and I'll do it again today. But what I don't do, and what I'll never do, I'm, I'm never going to open up Twitter or the front page of CNN or 4chan or Reddit. I'm not going to stand here and, and scroll through and try to own the libs every day and, and talk about the wicked leftists and what they're in, what they're up to and rail against them every Sunday. I'm not ever going to do that. I don't ever plan on doing that. Why not? Because that might fire you up but that will never feed you. That will never strengthen you. That will never get God's words inside your head and your heart, and that's what you need. I need to hear Jesus, and you need to listen to Jesus, and we need to spend time listening to him speak to us. We have not mastered this book, and before we think we can fix any of the problems of the world, we must first eat from the tree of life. When we listen to Jesus speak, And we work to understand the text of scripture. What happens is, it always happens to me. I am fired up, I am frustrated, I am anxious, I am terrified, and I come to God's word. What happens is my priorities all get replaced. Everything shifts around. I get refocused on heaven's priorities. I think a thing is super urgent and super significant, but then I enter the Gospels and I find, wait a minute, no, this is the important thing. This is the significant thing. This is the urgent thing. And then the world comes into focus. I can see that it's very conflict, this conflict of mixed agendas and separated agendas, the worldly agenda and the scriptural agenda, and the biblical agenda is in play in this text here. Because the apostles are not hearing. And because they're not hearing, they're so far off base in what they expect. Jesus has just told them what's gonna happen when they get to Jerusalem. And how do they respond? They start to posture. They start to jockey for position. They start to rival each other. They start to compete Well, didn't Jesus say something about a kingdom? And didn't he say something about sitting on thrones and glory and honor in the kingdom? That's what they pick up and they fixate on to the exclusion of everything else that he said. Though here we pick it up in verse 20. The mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. Now, before we dig into her motivation here and before we look at her request, I wanna be clear that this is a faithful woman. She is the wife of Zebedee. Zebedee was the fisherman from Capernaum. She's the mother of James and John. Uh, Mark gives us her name, Salome is her name. Luke tells us that there was a group of women who traveled with Jesus and the apostles who served them and, and helped, helped take care of them. And we read in various accounts that this same woman, Salome, was there at the crucifixion and she was also one of the women who go to anoint the body of Jesus on the morning of the resurrection. So she, she's there and she's one of the faithful women who are part of the group uh, the, that follows Jesus. She's, she's been there from the beginning. But we find out that even the most faithful friends of Jesus need correction and they need instruction when they aren't thinking clearly and Jesus doesn't refrain from correcting anybody, man or woman, when uh, they need it. No matter how close they are to him, no matter how long they've been serving, no matter what they've done for him in the past, no one is exempt from his teaching, his exhortation, his admonishment. There's, there's just no favoritism with Jesus. And so, this is a faithful woman, this is a moment of weakness and ignorance on her part. Now, I wonder, does she come kneeling in the posture of a supplicant because she's worshiping and honoring Jesus? Or is this flattery? Is is, is this in any way intended to be manipulative the way she comes to him? Because it's apparent that she's not quite got her head wrapped around how the kingdom of the Lord Jesus works. So she comes, kneeling down, asking something from him. Verse 21, and he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. Jesus, I want my boys to be lifted up. If there's gonna be a kingdom and you're its king, I want my boys to be in the inner, inner, innermost circle. I want them to be exalted to the chief seats. You might ask, why, Salome? Why do you want this? Why do you want this for your boys? Is is it because they're the better, more intelligent? Are they more skilled than the other 10 of the disciples? Are they better looking? Why are you wanting them to be on the inside? Is it, is it because they're yours, Salome? Is it, is it because you want nepotism? You're, you want to be on the inside track. And if your boys are on in the inner circle, it makes you look good. You can tell all of your friends and all of your relatives about the success of your boys. Don't miss how poorly timed this question is. Don't miss how ham-handed this is. The atmosphere around Jesus is Thick with the gravity of what he is headed into. And in spite of this, here we are talking about how we're going to divide up the spoils of victory before we've even gotten to the conflict. Not to mention that they're thinking in terms of human government and how the empires of men work, how how the powerful and the wealthy set up these cushy appointments for their friends. This whole scene brings up more questions than, than I have answers for. Why is the question presented by mom? here. Uh, Why would these grown men allow their mother to speak up for them like this? I can only explain this by seeing this is a display of spiritual immaturity and of weakness and an utter lack of understanding of who Jesus is and what he's been teaching them all along. But Jesus entirely rejects this power play. Verse 22, but Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. You want your boys to be on my right hand and on my left hand when I am coronated? Who is on Jesus' right hand and on his left hand when he is crowned king of the Jews? Who's on his right and his left? There's two men on crosses who are on his right and his left. Mama, you're asking for glory for your boys, but in my kingdom, The highest places of glory are reserved for those who go through the deepest places of suffering. You do not know what you're asking for. And so so he continues. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But the sin on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. He talks about a cup and he talks about a baptism. Why does he talk about a cup? Well, they must have had pictures in their head of them sitting at a royal feast, sharing cups of wine with the king. The man who shares the cup of the king is his closest advisor, his most trusted confidant. That's what they're asking to be. They're asking to be on the right and on the left. Joseph was the cupbearer for Pharaoh. Joseph was at the king's right hand. Nehemiah was the cupbearer for Artaxerxes. Nehemiah was at the king's right hand. That's what they're asking for. If you're a king at a royal banquet, drinking with your cabinet, you're at rest. You have something to celebrate. You've defeated your enemies, so you can put put your feet up and take some satisfaction in your victory. Now, there is a cup that Jesus is gonna drink from, but that's gonna be the cup of God's wrath That's the cup that he's about to drink and the cup he's referring to here. Psalm 75 says, In the hand of Yahweh there is a cup, and the wine is red, it's fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. Psalm 75 talks about the cup of wrath that he's going to feed to the Uh, uh, The heathen nations, the idolatrous nations, and cause them to drink. And the prophet Jeremiah picks up on that in Jeremiah 25. He talks about the nations getting drunk on Yahweh's cup of wrath. And when they drink his cup of wrath, they vomit and they stagger and they, they fall over. In Revelation 16, the cups of wrath get poured out on the rebellious and unbelieving. So that's the cup that Jesus is talking about. The cup that Jesus is about to drink is not the cup of the wine of celebration and the royal banquet cup, but the cup of God's divine wrath against our sin, that is the cup that Jesus is about to drink himself. And he drinks it down completely, down to the dregs for us. He drinks that cup of wrath so that we can drink the cup of blessing, literally. We literally drink the cup of blessing at his table, the symbol of his shed blood. And and when we drink that cup together, we're setting his sacrifice before God as a covenant memorial. And we pledge our loyalty to each other and to him as we drink that cup. And and this is what he asks. He says, are you ready to drink this cup of my my suffering? He also uses the word baptism deliberately. In in our baptisms, we deny ourselves. The old man is crucified. We're identified in our baptisms with Christ and with his suffering. We take his name on us. We take up the cross. And, and, And Jesus is saying, can you do this? Can you do this, James and John? Are you ready for this? And without even knowing what they're saying, they say, yes, we are able. And Jesus says, that's right, that's right. You are going to be baptized. You are going to drink this cup. And and in fact, that's what happens. James will suffer. James is killed. He's a martyr. Uh, James is killed by Herod in the book of Acts. And we know John suffers for the sake of the gospel and ends up exiled to the island of of Patmos, yes, James and John, you will go through suffering with me. But these seats of honor are not mine to give. In fact, your whole ranking system, the whole way you're looking at this is way off. The way you view power and authority is is worldly. You, You don't understand what I'm doing here. So the correction for their vain ambition is the cross. There's not gonna be any glory, there's not gonna be any sitting or resting in the kingdom unless there's first a cross. That's what we've all got to remember, even especially us well intentioned parents. We need to hear with this good mother that if our children are going to be exalted, they must first learn how to deny themselves, take up their cross, and learn how to suffer for themselves. And we can't do it for them. Now, to be sure, James and John and Salome were partially right. There is going to be a banquet that Jesus has given us an assurance of victory. He gives us songs to sing in the valley of the shadow of death. He spreads a table before us in the presence of our enemies. But it but it's one thing to keep that in perspective and to and to face opposition cheerfully and maturely with that in in view and quite another thing to lose sight of all the danger and to assume that we're just going to waltz into victory. And that's the, the their question smacks of that. We're gonna to get to the feast. We're gonna to get to the joy apart from the suffering and apart from the enemies. Well, verse 24, when the, ten, when the 10 heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Are the other 10, are they mad because of the question James and John asked? Are, are they mad because James and John were jockeying for position? Or are they mad because they beat them to it? Are they, are they mad because they got there first? Nevertheless, I love the gentleness, and the patience of the Savior. He has got more on his mind than these silly squabbles, and he doesn't lose control. I don't know about you, but when my mind is weighed down with what I feel like is the weight of the world, when I I am focused on a significant problem, a significant difficulty, it it is hard for me to be patient with what I I perceive to be petty or silly things. And yet, Jesus doesn't lose control. He doesn't lose his temper. He teaches loving and kindly. Verse 25, listen how he answers it. He called them to himself. When the other 10 were upset at James and John, Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who, exercise, those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. And whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is telling his men, do not act like the Gentiles. Don't imitate the heathen nations. You know how the Gentile emperors lorded over their people. You know how the Caesars act. They exercise this dominant dictatorship because for pagans, the point of authority, the point of power is control. They want domination. They want authority because they want to run your life. They want you to do what what they want you to do. They And you know what it's like to be on the receiving end of that. You know what it's like to to be ruled by a tyrant. And Jesus says it's not going to be that way in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. In my kingdom, the servant is king. The child is the greatest. The one who pours himself out entirely is king of all. And so what this tells us is that if we aren't dying then we aren't leading. If we aren't pouring ourselves out in any way similar to the way that the Lord Jesus poured himself out, if we're not dying, we aren't leading. And this goes for fathers and bosses and pastors and elders and kings. We lead by example. You don't get respect simply by demanding respect. You're supposed to honor me. You're supposed to respect me. You're supposed to do what I say. Well, if you want submission and humility, uh, demonstrate it. First, by submitting to the Lord Jesus yourself. Humble yourself and give yourself and show me, show me what obedience looks like. Show me what humility and submission look like. Give yourself. This is what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't just say, you're gonna sacrifice for me. Jesus pours himself out entirely, keeps nothing back, and pours himself out entirely for his bride, for his children. And he gives us this, this example to follow. So contrast this with the, with the worldly examples of power, and the worldly expectations and definitions of authority. That's exactly the opposite of the way things work in the kingdom. The wicked wanna be in charge. That's the goal in and of itself. They want your obedience and for you to do what they tell you to do. They want power and control to force people to think how they approve of thinking. They want authority not to serve the people, but to be served. And Jesus says that's not how we do things in the kingdom. That's how the totalitarians act. That's how the tyrants act. Now, there's an element of this thinking in in how how Christians sometimes talk about politics and government. We're we're missing this and and we're not listening to Jesus here. We think this way, we are tired. We are sick and tired from being bullied. We are are tired of having our, our lives run by wicked authorities. But but we can talk like this. We, we think, well, I wanna be in charge so that I can be the bully. I wanna be in charge so I can be the tyrant and I want to tell everyone what to do. We're, we're, we're always tempted to imitate wickedness because we buy the lie that the wicked are powerful and successful and it works. Well, it doesn't work. It all has an expiration date. It's all headed for judgment and destruction. Don't think if it works for them that it's gotta work for us, and and that's the way the world works. Jesus dismisses all of this. He says, you see, there's a completely different way. There's the way of the shepherd king who lays down his life for the sheep. There's the servant king who washes his his servant's feet. Uh, The greatest of all is the servant of all, Jesus says. Now, there's one more short episode before they finally get to the city, verse 29. Now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Then the multitudes warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Significantly, the last miracle that Jesus performs before going into the city of Jerusalem is healing blind men. Every time he heals somebody, every time he exercises his power this way, he's making a commentary on the spiritual condition of Israel. So it's significant that he heals blind men before going into the city. Israel is blind. Israel's destitute and helpless. Their leaders and all their experts, all the religious experts are blind men leading each other into ditches and destruction. Jesus alone is the light of the world. He's the only one who can shed light on the darkness. And amazingly, these blind men who call out to Jesus, they can see what the Pharisees can't see, which they can see who Jesus is, and they cry out to him, in their need. Pharisees won't do that, scribes won't do that. They crowd to Jesus for mercy. They call him Lord and son of David. Some people in the multitude, some people in the crowd try to shut them up. They know, these people know, that something big is about to happen. We're all part of this big army that's about to enter the city. We don't need these vagabonds. We don't need these tramps ruining this special moment. We don't need them trying to join this royal entourage. And the the more the crowd tries to quiet them, the louder the blind men cry out. But Jesus hears them and he stops and Jesus asks them the same question that he asks of Salome. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want? What are you looking for? What do you need? But see how different their answer is. They've already cried out, Lord have mercy on us. They're looking not for honor, They're not looking for prestige. They're not looking for political favors. They're not looking to be exalted. They are seeking mercy. And now when they have this pointed question directed to them, what is it? What exactly do you want? They say, Lord, that our eyes be opened. There's not a more excellent answer to that question when Jesus asks you, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, Open my eyes. If only James and John Salome had asked that same question. Help us see. Help us understand what you're doing in the world, Lord. Open our eyes. Now, these two men sitting by the road were likely there to beg, but they don't ask Jesus for money. And, and remember last week, the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. These guys are not bragging about their law-keeping. They don't ask for special seats of honor like James and John. All they ask, I just want to see. If I can see, I can put this old life of darkness behind. I'm happy to leave my old life behind and follow Jesus. And that's exactly what happened. Immediately, Jesus touched their eyes, they received sight, and they followed Jesus. These are men who have drank the cup of suffering. These are men who have been baptized in sorrow and whose only ambition at this point is to follow Jesus. And these are the men, don't miss it, these are the men that get their requests answered. These are the men who get what they ask for. The rich young ruler went away sorrowful. He, didn't get, he wasn't satisfied with Jesus' answers. Jesus says to James and John, what you're asking for, I can't promise to deliver. I, I can't promise you're gonna get what you're looking for. But to these poor helpless souls crying out for mercy, they are the ones who have their prayers met with an abundance of blessing. They can see now and they can go with Jesus into the city where he's gonna be mocked and he's gonna be scourged and he's gonna be crucified. They're going with him into the fire, into the baptism of fire in the city. Now you and I right now on this Lord's Day, we're in the very same position that James and John and their mother and these blind men stood in. You and I, uh, just as Jesus went up to Jerusalem, you and I have gone up into the heavenlies in Jerusalem in worship. We've gone up into the presence of the Lord. We have kneeled before him. And he asks the same question. What do you want me to do for you? What is it? What do you want me to do for you? How do you answer that question? What what is the desire of your heart? If Jesus asks you that, what do you want? Well, I want respect. I want honor. I want influence. I want recognition. I want meaning. I want wealth, I want someone to notice me. I want power and command and authority. I want people to do what I say, and I want people to act the way I want them to act, and I want people to think the way I want them to think. I want control, are those the answers? Is that what comes to mind? Is that that what you want? Is that the chief desire of your heart above all things? Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? If you're thinking like James and John, those are the answers that you might give. But how do we answer that? What do you want? I want mercy. Lord, be merciful to me. Lord, have mercy on me. Because I want to see. I want to understand, open my eyes. I want to discern truth from lies. I want to tell the difference between folly and wisdom. I want to follow you. I want to share in your suffering. I want to grow through the struggle. So mature me and make me complete. I want to drink the cup that you drink and I wanna be baptized with the baptism that you're baptized with. I I wanna put the old man to death and I wanna be raised to walk in newness of life. Teach me how to humble myself and to be servant of all. That's what I want. That is the desire of my heart. That's the answer that the Lord Jesus is looking for and that's the answer that he blesses. Now, if any of that is off-putting or offensive to you, you will never be great in the kingdom of heaven. If that sounds soft, if that sounds lame, if that sounds weak, you don't get it. You don't understand it. And you need to repent. And you need to read it again. And read it again. Until you get it. Until you hear the Savior speaking these words. And understand what he's asking for. And understand how his kingdom is run. How it works. But but when this is your desire. Lord, I, just, I need to see. Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, help me to follow you and drink that cup. And be baptized with that baptism. When you're motivated by these kingdom priorities, then... And only then will we be truly great and share in the life and the blessing and the peace of the reign of Jesus over all things. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. Please be merciful to us. Lord, open our eyes that we might see. Give us clarity of thought. Give us wisdom and discretion and discernment. Give us self-discipline that we might enter into uh, this baptism, enter into this cup of suffering and to be transformed from glory to glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now let us continue worshiping God by bringing his tithe and our offering.